1: We have a new Prime Minister. Boris Johnson is the man. He'll be well. He'll be going through the process this morning of taking over from Theresa May, who'll be going through the process of exiting via Buckingham Palace. Uh, exciting times politically, no question or doubt about that. Exciting times journalistically as well. I can't think of a journalist the length and breadth of the country who doesn't think that this is good because there will be plenty of issues to talk about. There'll be calm inches to fill and it will be hell for leather. I would imagine not only over the next few days over the next few weeks and if Boris Johnson has his way over the next few years let me speak to Alex Cain, Alex good morning
0: Good morning Frank how are you?
1: I'm very well Alex, I mentioned this to him on Mali yesterday, he is a journalist's dream isn't he?
0: Oh, absolutely, I mean, and it's always I know people who are, will be listening say oh that's great these guys think this is a huge joke, and so on but yeah when you when my job is to comment about politics, to talk about it, write about it, think about it, go to public events, and talk about it, and yeah, Johnson, the thing about Johnson is. He's the sort of person that the public ask you about first. Sometimes when you discuss in politics, you almost have to introduce the subject. Only, only yesterday, just crossing to the shop yesterday at uh, mid afternoon on the Craigie Road, about four people all said, "Oh boy, what this is going to be fun." He Johnson resonates for sometimes good reasons, for sometimes bad reasons. He resonates with the public. Frank, they're interested in him. They want to know what he's going to do. They love him. They love him. People never shrug their shoulders and say, "What do you think of Boris Johnson?" Ah, you ask anybody, "What do you think of Boris Johnson?" And you will get an answer, and that, from my point of view, and Malachi's and Ament, for us that is brilliant because it gives us—it it makes our job easier. Yeah, but you get
1: a sense watching him on TV that he's pretending to be prime minister. It's a—it's an actor that's doing it.
0: I think, well. I remember four years ago writing the piece about Johnson, and I, I, I'm thinking, and you know, I'm not making excuses. I, I got it completely wrong. I I just thought he would never become prime minister. Now this was before the the whole um, Brexit debacle and so on. I just thought it wasn't in his style. Johnson. I I know people who worked with Johnson quite closely in in London when he was mayor, and said that Boris is great for going out and doing all the big speeches, and then coming back and expecting the press office and all this stuff to try and give some credibility to what he had just said because quite often he just made it on the hoof, made it up as he went along and even yesterday's speech, you know all, dude, we're going to go, yeah all that. it was just almost like he hadn't really given it all that much thought and my big concern about Boris I know it's only day one, my big concern about Boris, he doesn't like the nitty gritty, he doesn't like the very detailed stuff he likes to be liked, he likes to give the rhetorical service my concern, Frank, is that this is a man who hasn't quite understood being Prime Minister, I mean, we, we, we saw what he did as Mayor of London, we saw what he did as Soros Secretary, we saw other things he's done. I think he now needs to understand that the slightest mistake he makes could crash the pound, the slightest mistake he makes could undo enormous work that's been done across the world by his predecessors. He needs now to rise lies to the challenge of being Prime Minister.
1: Do stay with me there, Alex, because Maliki is on the other line as well at our invitation. Morning, Maliki.
2: Good morning, Frank. I think you do an injustice to journalists by saying that they would, uh, they, you know, they would just love Boris because he would provide them with plenty of stories. Right. I think uh, journalists, uh, uh, you know, have a right to be very uh, leery of Boris Johnson since he was a journalist himself and and a very poor one in some respects in that he was really inaccurate. He did uh, get sacked for uh, reporting inaccurately from Brussels. He was one of those who whipped up the stories about straight bananas and all kinds of nonsense that that fostered. The, the suspicion of the European Union in Britain. So, we, you know, I can imagine you and Eamon Mali having a wee drink and thinking, oh great, this will be a laugh full of plenty of stories. But actually, you know, journalists uh, have professional standards which Boris doesn't live up to and they also have a sense of uh, belonging to the country that they live in and have citizenship responsibilities mm. apart from their professional responsibilities. So yep. yes, there will be fun in the job, I'm sure, and it'll be a, it'll be a fun ride in many ways. But it, will be, it is potentially calamitous as well, and I think journalists are are very strongly aware
1: of that. Yeah, but the important thing, Malaga, I'm not judging him as a journalist, him as a journalist, I'm judging him as a Prime Minister. I'm saying journalists will have a field day and will be busy and will be filming Colin Minches because that man, that man is Prime Minister
2: that man is prime minister and and he and he is a clown he's a buffoon and and he will be a bother to us all and and yes there will be plenty to write about i you know i think back to times i mean keeping it on journalism just one moment longer i mean i remember you know journalists living through uh, the the peace process you know and the anxieties about deadlines the nearest we have to a political uh, crisis uh, on the scale of Brexit, you know, with, with with deadlines in front of us that had to be met and seemed impossible and were indeed skipped. Journalists were there covering the story, but journalists were also, uh, as people who live here and people who are passionately engaged with the issues, in many ways more deeply engaged with the issues than, than the ordinary voter, were, were emotionally engaged in the experience. And, and I mean maybe one of the lessons that some of us have learned from that is not to get as wound up uh, about this as, as we did about the peace process. But to look at where things stand now with Boris Johnson, uh, about to choose a Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, uh, about to seal a confidence and supply deal with the DUP, and, and looking ahead to how he's going to uh, to, to, to get us out of the, of the European Union. I would think that there's the, the, there must be people in the DUP who are thinking to themselves, oh my God, what have we done? You know, who must be thinking it's time to try and get off this hook. And I think that, you know, they, they are in a very, very difficult difficult position. Boris can't be trusted, uh, not to shaft them anyway. I think if he's sending Michael Gove here, which is being speculated, if you think Gove, then think Mountbatten, because you don't send the assistant chief constable to sort out a domestic dispute. If you're sending the big guns in, it's because there's a big plan. And when you're sending somebody in, as with uh, my Mountbat- sorry, with uh, Mandelson, as indeed with with uh, timely royal visits, it's usually to to placate unionism with symbols uh, while while knifing them in the ribs at the same time. So if I was in the DUP, I'd be very worried about this. I would also uh, look back on how things went with May. May's big mistake was to make a deal with the DUP in the first place. She didn't need them. They were never going to usher Corbyn in. So all she had to do was govern in a minority government and rely on the DUP uh, to, to save the government at crucial times. They were no use to her in getting through her withdrawal deal. So Boris Johnson is going to think, look, either we're going to crash out of this, uh, which we really don't want to do, or we're going to make a deal, and the deal that'll, that'll get through and can be done in the time is the border down the Irish Sea. And, and I would be very, very worried about that about if I
1: was in the DUP. The idea of Michael Gove, of course, that's not a guarantee, but it's speculation that Michael Gove might be the Northern Ireland secretary, which is seen in the Cabinet as, you know, the job you give to somebody we don't
2: really know. The- Unless you're giving them a very big job to do. Yeah, do you know so, what I mean? okay, but the, I mean, the very mean, fact, like but, the, but, on,
1: yeah, but on the back of that, if they are sending Gove here to Northern Ireland is that not Boris saying Northern Ireland is critical? Northern Ireland is vital. Northern yes. Ireland is central to my yes. policies and to my future yes.
2: thinking. Exactly. And why would it be that? Why would it be that? You know, I mean, why would it be that unless you're going to turn things around very, very sharply? You know, I mean, the Karen Patterson there, Karen Bradley, sorry, came here uh, as others before her. She would make a just, good.
1: Actually, she would make a good Secretary of State, wouldn't she?
2: Karen <laughs> Patterson. The of the tongue. No, I'm not going there. <laughs> I think Karen Patterson <laughs> would be very good at it. Why not? You're talking journalist. She's a very good journalist. <laughs> yeah, she absolutely an excellent journalist. I trained her. But, uh, <laughs> no, but Karen Bradley uh, was basically sent here just to mind the shop, you know, and that's what the routine uh, secretaries of state have been for. If they send somebody like Michael Gove here, it will not be for minding the shop, it'll be for doing a big job. And what will that job be? You know, it, it, it You know what Gove would like it to be. If you know Gove and the kind of historical viewpoint that he has, and the uh, you know as a British Unionist and as uh, you know somebody with uh, with a, with a big picture perspective, you know it'll be resolving the Irish question. That's what it'll be for somebody like Gove. Yeah, but know? would it not it's, be
1: to the advantage of the DUP? You said the DUP want off the hook. The last person that Sinn Fein want to see coming here is Michael Gove. The D- DUP absolutely, but, but uh, happy you know, with and, Gove. That's, and
2: that's and that's and uh, that would sweeten the DUP for it. I think the DUP, a lot in the DUP, and I think Alex agrees with this as well, do want off the hook, but I don't think they see a way of getting off the hook, you know. I mean, it is such a hostile act to rip open the border of a neighbouring country and leave it exposed, and that is what they're contemplating doing. And the affront that that is to the Irish and to Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland will never be lived down if it goes wrong. You know, so the DUP is living in Cloud Cuckoo, and this is a really a party living with very little sense of the of the of the situation. It is. in. It is, I spoke to you before about the union. The union of Britain and Northern Ireland was sustained in its first century by a Protestant majority. That Protestant majority has gone. So what is going to sustain the union into the next century? The only thing that will sustain it into the next century is the full ascent of a broader broader spread of People living here, people who identify themselves as Irish, people who identify themselves as, as 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 other, you know, as well as as well as Protestant or Unionist. So, so the union as conceived by by Craig in Twenty One is gone. So, the, if you need an imaginative Unionist who is. Articulating the union in a wholly different way, as I indeed myself have tried to do. Plug plug in my latest book, Fifty Years On: The Troubles and the Struggle for Change for Northern Ireland, in all good bookshops in a couple of weeks from now. But I have said there, you know, there are things about the union that were never said about unionists by unionists. For a very simple fact. That Ireland and England are are have such integrated populations that there are more Irish living in England than there are in Ireland. You know, uh, you know, but that has never been played by unionism. Unionism has said the union is important because of the monarchy, because of Protestant ascendancy, because you know of, of this, that, and the other. And and the, the the nationalists, the Catholics, know what side their bread is buttered on. Well, you know, they do know what side their bread is buttered on. And it's not on the side of an England that is governed in perpetuity by uh, Etonian prats, you know, with Scotland gone as well. No way. No, if Arlene Foster and people like her need to be sitting down with some kind of think tank that redefines the whole conception of unionism, that is much more inclusive unionism and wards off the imminent danger Because if we go out on a no deal, we're talking about the. You know, I thought a year ago that we were talking about a border poll, maybe five or ten years away, with a totally disaffected nationalism inside Northern Ireland. Looking at a Brexit that wasn't working out too well, but if we're looking at a Brexit that's gone, that has crashed by Christmas, then then you're looking at uh, a change of mood in this country that unionism has created. It was created by poking, the, you know, the, you know, waking the sleeping dog of of the of the unresolved Irish question. They did it. They poked the dog with a stick. This is their problem. And what is going to happen if they rip the border open and they leave Ireland exposed, the, the danger of having to come out of the single market and not affront to a neighbouring country, a hostile act, if they do that, then who's to say what the, the temper uh, among Irish people and, and nationalists in Northern Ireland will be in even a month from now.
1: Alex, are you buying this? Because maliki's definitely in top form this morning.
2: Oh absolutely.
0: And I, I, I where I do agree with Malkey, um, he'll know that he that a number of panels that uh writing <laughs> for thirty odd years, that unionism long before the Brexit stuff, long before Anglo been, and so on, saying that unionism needs to come up with a new narrative. It needs to realise that just been me. Look at me, Frank, I'm a unionist I'm I'm an unambiguous unionist. I've never I've never had doubts about it. I speak about it quite freely and openly. But I'm an atheist, Frank. I don't believe in the monarchy, I don't believe in all elected houses of lords. I could just Easy living in the United States of Great Britain and Northern Ireland as the United Kingdom. So, and I think I think unionism has been very, very, very slow at accepting the fact that the old days and the old ways, you know, if you're Protestant, you must be unionist, if you're Catholic. Not only are you anti unionist, but somehow you're probably also a closet supporter of the IRA. I used to hear that language when I was going up front. I'm not hearing that language so much now. That's important. There's a section of unionism which is also recognised. That you know, if you look at the demographics, if you look at the electoral shifts, if you look at changes social values and so on, you give people a choice. Ten years ago, if you'd said there's a border poll, the choice would have been simple. It would have been choice: Do you want to live in the United Kingdom, or do you want to live in the United Ireland? Brexit has changed that. We don't know quite where Brexit is going to go, but Brexit has changed that dynamics because people are thinking, well, I like the European Union. I like the fact that the multiplicity of identities, you know, as, as a unionist, as a Protestant, as a pro-European, a socially liberal, a, all of those things, can I think, and believe can be accommodated within the European Union. And other people say, oh, well, you know, what, what about the United Kingdom? The whole dynamics of the debate has changed. Malachy's right. It's not so much, I think, that Unionists deliberately set out to poke this particular bear. If every single person who had voted Leave in Northern Ireland had voted Remain, it wouldn't have affected the overall outcome. What the big mistake Unionists did, and what particularly the EP did, was actually... And so I think I've said this to you before, and Malachy will certainly know this. Back, I think it was um, July, um, August 2016, a couple of months after the referendum, Arlene Foster and uh, Martin McGuinness wrote a joint letter to the the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, and said, you know, they accepted the difficulties they are going to raise, but they wanted to work together. They wanted to work together through the executive. They wanted to work together as first and deputy first minister. They wanted to ensure that Northern Ireland was his voice and particular needs were heard in Brussels, in London, in Dublin, and so on. And all that collapse and suddenly out of nowhere um um the, the dup became oh, were perceived as being very hard line, oh brexit drop out you know borders whatever it is you know let let ireland suffer and i'll tell you where i think that came from i think malachi will probably agree with this as well the The DUP in the the March 2017 Assembly election for Unionists lost the majority. For the first time ever in the history of Northern Ireland, Unionists no longer had a majority in an Assembly, a local parliament. That was a really difficult time. I talked to key players in the DUP and they were, what terrified is too strong a word, Frank, but they were seriously spooked because for the first time it, it just really hit them smack between the eyes. Maybe we no longer are the majority. Maybe there's a dumb, maybe there's a majority of people who would on paper say oh, we're pro union Protestant, but in electoral terms, is unionism still the majority? That scared them. And then three months later, they end up with a, in parliamentary arithmetic where they're suddenly needed by the government of the United Kingdom to keep them going, to bail them out, to be at their side. It, it allowed them to be there. look at us, we are the kingmakers across the United Kingdom. That was a moment, Frank, and I wrote about it at the time, that was a moment for caution. It was a moment for canny playing. It was a moment for working out how do you best position Northern Ireland with Dublin with Brussels, with London, with Edinburgh, with Cardiff, how do you make the best overall pro-Union case, pro-United Kingdom case in a difficult circumstance? They didn't. They went hell for leather with some very peculiar form of unionism, which I didn't even recognise. And that's where Maliki's right as well. At some point, they, the DUP are in a position, you and I have had this conversation, of going back to the three year thing. They never expected to be in. They don't know how to get off this hook. They don't trust Johnson for all the smiles. Oh, well done, Bo. Excellent, Boris. You know, we loved you a bit about, you know, protect the union. So all they need to know, anyone who's ever worked in politics will know that if you've been shafted or betrayed once by someone you perceive to be a friend, there's a very strong likelihood that they will do exactly the same thing again, so you will always be wary of them. And that is the real, real problem for the DUP in particular now. And if the DUP get it wrong, Frank, then they get it wrong for all of unionism in Northern Ireland. Um, personally, I don't. I really don't know if they have... I know they accept they have a problem, I don't yet know if they've worked out how to extricate themselves from this particular mess.
1: Really interesting commentary, Alex. Thank you very much, Uh, Malaki. Thank you indeed. Uh, This, in the wake of Boris Johnson, sort of looking round the corner of Downing Street and realising that a little bit later today he's going to be sleeping in a bed. Head up there.